0: The next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at the subject in the Bible, uh, the fear of the Lord, um, and then after that, we're going to look at the letters to the seven churches that Jesus uh, gave in Revelation 2 and 3. I think these are um, really pertinent subject matters for us to look at. Um, this morning, it's going to, my message is going to be a, a little bit, I mean, my approach is going to be a l- little different than than usual, perhaps. Usually, I take... A chunk of verses, a verse or three or five or ten, and kind of step through it uh, and uh, try to clearly explain what it says and apply it and so forth. And, and uh, this morning, I'm going to take a phrase and then kind of do a broad sweep of uh, what the Bible says about um, some of the ingredients that um, would produce this in our lives. And the phrase is, they, they were walking in the fear of the Lord. They were walking in the, so this is the early church. This is uh, Acts chapter nine. Uh, Saul, who later was referred to as Paul, had uh, been converted and uh, became one of the good guys, and was no longer, you know, hunting Christians down, and it says that they, there was peace in the church, and they walked in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the spirit. And so I want to look at that phrase, "the fear." Of the Lord, or they walked in the fear of the Lord. It's not just that they had a moment where they feared God, but there was a walking in the fear of the Lord. And I think this, there's something for us here. We need to be people who walk in the fear of the Lord. Um, you know, it was once commonplace uh, not too long ago for a godly man to be referred to as a God fearing man. You, anyone remember? I'm not saying that's completely gone, but I don't hear that very often, right? Uh, there's a, uh, there is a title to a chapter in a book that I have called, Where Have All the God-Fearers Gone? <laughs> Where have they gone, you know? Um, but it was, it was not uncommon to call uh, a man who is godly a God-fearing man. To the modern uh, Christian even, modern person, that sounds kind of stuffy and religious, Um, But in my view, we need a little bit more of that kind of religion, um, the kind that produces the fear of the Lord, the kind that produces that that sort of godliness, uh, humility, and a reverence for God, uh, rather than, uh, you know, we need less of the slick and shallow kind of religion or spirituality that's pervasive today, I think. Um, The excellent woman or the excellent wife in Proverbs 31, how is she described fundamentally? She's described as a woman who fears the Lord. Verse 30 says, Charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. So charm and beauty, those things fade, right? There's, there's something, you know, but think about what we prize in our society right now. It's not a godliness. It's not a fear of the Lord. It is beauty. It is uh, charm. That's the woman who is to be praised by her children and husband. It's a woman who fears the Lord. We live in a period of time right now where I think this is on a steep decline. And uh, I think we need a revival of the fear of the Lord. And When I say that, I'm saying I need that too. I'm not just saying you. I'm not here just preaching to you. I Remember John. Well, John Owen once wrote, the one who preaches a sermon to others on the Lord's day, ought to have been preaching to himself all week. And this is something I've been deeply, deeply challenged by and burdened uh, because I think it's on the decline not only in society but in the church and I see my need for it as well. We need a revival of the fear of the Lord. Paul describes the basic problem of sinful man in Romans 3. Romans 3, starting in verse 10 to verse 18, he goes through this litany of things to describe uh, rebellious man against God. is um, says that there's no one who is righteous, no not, no, not one. There's no one who seeks for God. No one is good. Their throat is an open grave. Under their tongues is a venom of ass. It just goes on and on and on. And then to sum it all up in verse 18, he says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And he's, he's quoting Psalm 36, verse 1, which says, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. You look at what's going on in our society right now. You look at what's going on even in the church where you see scandal and just rank, sin. What is going on? There's no fear of God. There's no fear of the Lord. Where there's no fear of the Lord, God's law is broken without hesitation. We see it in society. we're at large. We see it in the household of God, the church. When these things are going on, you may be sure that there is no fear of God. Now, I want to say something because I want to be clear. We are all being sanctified as Christians, right? We're all in a work in progress. God knows we are, and if we're honest, we recognize we are too. But we are to be growing in holiness, growing in sanctification, and Paul puts it this way, we are to perfect holiness in the fear of of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 7.1 We are to perfect holiness or bring holiness to completion in the fear of God. Well, what is the fear of the Lord? Martin Luther, many, many centuries ago, rightly differentiated between what he called a slavish sort of fear and a filial fear. Slavish fear is like the fear that a prisoner would have for a torturer and a filial fear would be that kind of Fear that a child would have for a loving father. Good and loving stern, but loving and good father. And I think that's right as far as it goes. But I think we need to recognize that God is not just a father. He's also God. Right? He's, He's also God. So I would add to Luther's insight, I would say that the fear of the Lord is also an honor and a reverence And an awe, we sang about it earlier, an awe that comes from recognizing God's majesty and the fact that God is God and we are not, that he is infinitely above us and that he loves us, okay? So the fear of the Lord is honor, reverence, and awe that comes from recognizing his majesty and the fact that he's God, that he's infinitely above us, and yes, he loves us in Christ, A.W. Tozer described the fear of the Lord as an astonished reverence. I love that. An astonished reverence. So it holds in tension the truth that God is our father and he's also the the eternal, sovereign, unchanging judge and God of the universe. We're going to see this in some of the passages we look at. But if we fear the Lord, here's what we do. We refuse to try to bring God down to our level. We refuse to do that. He is God and we are not. We're tempted to do that. It's interesting, the fear of the Lord is actually one of the gifts of the new covenant which the Holy Spirit bestows upon us and gives to us. It's one of the gifts of the, of the Holy Spirit, one of the gifts of the new covenant that the Holy Spirit gives to us. In Jeremiah 32, that great prophecy of the new covenant, God says this, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them and I will put the fear of me in their hearts. Isn't that interesting? I will not turn away from doing good to them. Here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn away from me. I will rejoice in doing good to them and I will plant them in the land with faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. So we're given this gift of the fear of the Lord and the new birth, but it's also something that needs to be cultivated like a garden, right? We need to get rid of the weeds that grow up that try to choke out this posture and this way of walking before the Lord in the fear of him. We need to make sure that the sun shines on our hearts and cultivate and get rid of the weeds and make sure that there's plenty of nourishment and water to cultivate this fear of the Lord. Someone once said the fear of the Lord is the soul of godliness. So it gives, it gives life and flavor to godliness. Where there is no fear of the Lord, you can, make, you can be sure that there is no Godward living Living toward God. And so, here's what I want to do today. I want to I take a look at four ingredients of the fear of the Lord. And these are, more could be said, obviously. But these are four key ingredients, I think. And uh, so these are some of the non-negotiables. You might be thinking, well, there's some other things. Sure. These are four things. Okay, I got 40 minutes, so I can't go through too much. All right, four ingredients to the fear of the Lord. I'm going to mention, I'm going to say them, and then we're going to go through each one, okay? The first is a true knowledge of God. A true knowledge of God. You can have no fear of the Lord without a true knowledge of who he is. Second is a pervasive awareness of his presence. Third is a growing gratitude for what God has done for us in Christ. And fourth is a strong sense of our duty to God. So first, a true knowledge of God. It all, it all starts right here. Okay? Without a clear and true apprehension of God, there can be no godly fear. There might be a slavish fear, I suppose. Right? But there's no true godly fear. And when there's no godly fear, there's a cascading of terrible consequences. Tozier, again, said, The low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians in our day and this was probably in the 1960s. Probably hasn't gotten better. Maybe it has, I don't know, but probably not. So the low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians is the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. When there's no fear of the Lord, it, it leads to a whole bunch of other things. We already kind of talked about that, right? The venom of asps is under their tongues. There's no one righteous and so forth. I remember once talking to a man who uh, at one time was a dear friend of mine, and he was, he was walking off a cliff both morally and spiritually. I mean, he has made shipwreck of his faith and his family, and I remember talking with him face-to-face, which I, you know, hadn't for a while, but I talked to him, and I called him to repent of his sin and turn back to Christ and make things right where he needed to, and... The look on his face and the words that came out of his mouth, it was clear to me that there was no fear of God. There was no fear of the Lord. He talked about God, talked about God's kindness and goodness and how God would forgive him and all of this, but there was no fear of God whatsoever. God was completely absent in his mind as it, as it, as it pertained to where he felt like he wanted to go with his life started years earlier with him with this low view of God and his majesty but in the bible when people encounter god in his glory they are struck with fear they are when they when they meet god in his majestic glory they are i don't think it's wrong to say they're terrified Think of Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah's encounter. You probably are familiar with this. Now, I think we would probably say Isaiah was an upright man in his culture, right? He was, uh, now this is when he was called to be a prophet, when he was commissioned, you might say, but he was probably an upright man among the Israelites, the Jewish people. But when he encountered God, something pretty significant happened. Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook At the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Now, it's interesting. In John chapter 12, it says that Isaiah was getting a glimpse of the pre incarnate Christ. It was Jesus Christ that he saw here. How did Isaiah respond to this amazing vision of this Lord of hosts, right? Yahweh of hosts sitting on a throne? How did he respond? the last thing on his mind was to run up to him and give him a fist bump. That was not what he was thinking. Or to give him a hug. He said this, and I said, woe is me, for I am lost. Or New American Standard, I think says, I am undone. I'm falling apart at the seams, right? I'm just coming unglued. For I am a man of unclean lips and I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Amazing. He saw the Lord. He got a glimpse of him, right? He came to a true and right apprehension of who God is in his holiness, who God is in his kingship and who God is in in his majesty and he was undone. And it's interesting how the first thing he says is, I'm a man of unclean lips. Wow. <laughs> Me too. And we live among a people of unclean lips. That was Isaiah's response to the Lord when he got a glimpse of him, when he came to a, to a, a better apprehension of who God was. Think of Job. Job. We know the story of Job, right? The beginning of Job, he, he, uh, the Lord allows Satan to just wreak havoc on his life. He loses everything. And then there's about 36 chapters of Job and his friends going back and forth, right? Trying to right? They're, they're telling him what, what they think God is up to or what, what's going on, and he has responses for them. And, and then in chapter 38, so chapters 1 and 2, everything goes haywire for Job, Chapters 3 to 37, conversation with his friends. Chapter 38, God steps in. In Starting in verse 1, it says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action, and I will make it known to you. It's like, get up, get dressed. I want to have a talk with you. And then he said this. This is amazing. And this is like three chapters of this. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you understand. And he goes on and on, one, after, one thing after another. Who determined the measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were the bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning star re- sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, who shut in the sea with doors when, they, when it burst out of the womb? It's amazing. I mean, he's like, Job, let me ask you a question. And after about three chapters of this, actually four, 38 through 41, 42, chapter 42, 42, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you and I repent in dust and ashes. Pretty amazing. He encountered God, right? God said, here's the deal. Here's who I am. And Job responded rightly in fear and humility. One, one passage that, that I love, it's so amazing, is Habakkuk. Habakkuk, you know, he, uh, he sees what, that God is going to bring judgment upon the Chaldeans. And then God reminds him that, of how he judged other enemies in the past, And we get to the end of Habakkuk, and here's what Habakkuk says. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me, yet I will wait quietly for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. Rottenness enters my bones. I quiver, and my body trembles. I mean, there was a physical reaction to God's revelation. Now you might be thinking, well, that's Old Testament. Things have changed in the New Testament with the coming of Christ. And of course, certainly, there are some things that have changed. I mean, God's divine nature was, right? God God came and dwelt among us in the flesh. No doubt, right? He walked among his people. He interacted with his people. He interacted with them as one of them. God truly became man. But there are times when the veil was pulled back and people saw Christ in his divine nature. And how did they respond? Fear. Mark chapter 4. Jesus is with his disciples. They're crossing the Sea of Galilee and a big storm comes upon the sea. Jesus is sleeping in the stern of the boat, and his disciples are terrified. They got buckets. They're trying to get the water out. And eventually, they go to Jesus and say, don't you care that we are dying? And Jesus gets up and rebukes the wind, and it becomes like a sea of glass in an instant. And it's amazing their response. You would think they would be utterly relieved, but they weren't. They said, who is this? that even the wind and sea obey him. And it says they were filled with great fear. The storm was scary. Jesus, after he stilled it, was scarier. Luke chapter 5, when Peter's fishing and and he hasn't caught anything, and, and Jesus comes and says, hey, throw that net on the other side of the boat. And Peter says, I've been fishing all night. Right? He's an expert fisherman, but he says, well, I'll do it. And he does it, and just tons of fish. Are, they're fighting to get into that net, and the nets begin to break. And how does Peter respond to Jesus? He falls on his knees and says, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Of course, Matthew 17, the transfiguration. Jesus on the mount, he's transfigured before their eyes. His three disciples that are with him, James, John, and Peter, are on their faces filled with fear. Now you might think, okay, yeah, that's Jesus' New Testament, but it's not, it's before the cross. It's true, it is. But, go to Revelation chapter 1, you don't have to turn there. But this is the Apostle John, the beloved Apostle, who had, right, at the, the Last Supper was leaning against the breast of Jesus, and he got a glimpse of Christ in Revelation 1. In verse 17, it says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not, I am the first and the last, And the living one, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Now, why did Jesus say, don't be afraid? Well, the reason he said that is because there was a reason to be afraid. Christ in his glory is not just to be loved. He is to be loved, no doubt. He's not just to be trusted. He is to be trusted for sure. But I think even underneath those things, he is to be reverenced and feared. The first ingredient of the fear of the Lord is a true knowledge of God. We, if we don't have this, then there will be little or no fear of the Lord. Of course, we don't get this all at once, but our aim should be to grow in our knowledge of God. We just just started, got done studying 2 Peter on Thursday nights, and at the beginning and at the end, there's this... Uh, at the beginning, it says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ. And at the very end is this exhortation, but grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. To him be glory forever. The second ingredient is a pervasive awareness of God's presence. Christians know that God is omnipresent, of course. I mean, most do. Intellectually, we get it, we understand it. But here's the question, do we have an astonished reverence because of it? That right now we are in the presence of God, the living and true God. Do we have an astonished reverence of this? Maybe not. We may not. Psalm 139, I think, speaks with the language of astonishment. And then he says this, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. That's amazing. The phrase, or the question, where shall I flee from your presence? Well, the answer is, there's nowhere to flee from God's presence. But again, how often do we go through life completely unaware or mostly unaware that what we do is in the presence of God, before his face at all times? Genesis 28, Jacob has this he sees the Lord. Remember the, the, the story of Genesis 28 when he has this vision of a ladder that goes from earth to heaven and there are angels ascending and descending, and and God is at the top of it, the Lord's at the top, and And Jacob wakes up from this dream and he says, surely the Lord is in this place and I didn't even know it. And then he said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God and this is the gate of heaven. Maybe you and I ought to just acknowledge, like Jacob, the Lord is in this place and I didn't even know it. We are in the presence of God now not because we have some mystical feeling or vision or anything like that we are in the presence of god i hope listen i hope we do sense it and feel it but whether we feel it or not we need to align our way of thinking and our lives to the fact that we are in the presence of god and it's not just on the lord's day it's not just when we gather corporately on sunday for church It's Monday morning, it's Thursday afternoon, it's Saturday night when you have a hard time sleeping. Like me last night, I just was laying there, I'm not sure why, but, and uh, the Lord is there. We are living and moving and having our being in the presence of the Lord. There's a Latin phrase that describes this way of living, and it's the phrase koram deo. Anyone ever heard of that before? Koram deo. It, is, um, it means in the presence of or before the face of God. Godly men and women of old wanted to live koramdeo. deo. That was the aim of life. They wanted to live before the face of God, consciously before the face of God. And because we actually do live before the face of God, we ought to arouse ourselves to recognize it and be aware of it. Yes. Do you think it would impact the way that you live at at work, or interact with people at home, or um, what you watch and listen to, yeah. what you meditate on, what you think about, yeah. brothers and sisters? I am <laughs> deeply convicted. But it would impact us if we knew we're doing this before the gaze of Almighty God. And without that, like I said before, when there's no fear of God, God's laws are trampled on. We should ask the Lord's help for a greater awareness of this, I think. Because I do think it would change our conduct at home, with our spouse and our children, children, kids. It, it would it would impact your conduct towards your parents and your siblings, how you do school, everything. We have a tendency to kind of compartmentalize our lives. You know, we have this, these overtly spiritual things that we do and Christian activities and we go to church. We, do, we have our devotions and we, you know, all these sorts of things. And then we have these other things over here that are more secular and we do that, you know, um, as though we're just doing it on our own before no one else's gaze but our our own gaze. It's just not true. R.C. Sproul says that, says what it would mean if we lived karamdeo. He said to live karamdeo is to live one's entire life in the presence of God under the authority of God to the glory of God. To live all of life, karamdeo, is to live a life of integrity. In public and private, I'm adding that. (laughs) Right? In public and private, it it is a life of wholeness that finds its unity and coherence, excuse me, coherency in the majesty of God. I think this is why Paul says, Not that he's exactly talking about the fear of the Lord or living life karamdeo, but I think this is why Paul can say that whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. If there's something you can't do to God's glory, guess what? You can't do it. You shouldn't be doing it. But you can eat and drink to God's glory, and there's a lot you can do. all of life to God's glory before his gaze. The second ingredient of the fear of the Lord is a pervasive awareness of God's presence. Third, though, there is a, there, this is another ingredient, a growing gratitude for what God has done for us in Christ. I think this is really important. When we recognize who God is in his majesty and holiness and we seek to honor him and, and then we realize that we live our entire lives before his gaze, it can be paralyzing. It could be paralyzing. Because we recognize how far we fall short. Christopher Hitchens, who was a well-known atheist, he died some years ago, three or four or five years ago. He did a series of debates with uh, a Christian minister named Douglas Wilson uh, it's called this. It's a documentary called Collision. It's actually real, a really, really good documentary, and I think it. I think if I remember right, it's been several years since I watched it. But Doug, I think it's Douglas Wilson describing Christopher Hitchens' understanding of God as omnipresent, and he said Christopher Hitchens believes that God's omnipresence. He compares it to the ultimate surveillance state, right? Big Brother, always watching, ready to. Trounce on you and beat you with a billy club and probably put you in prison. But as Christians, we understand, as believers, as those who are in Christ, we understand that God, though He does see everything, everything's before His gaze, He is also our Father who loves us. And He's shown us this preeminently in Christ. He's reconciled us to Himself. And so though there is a reverence and a a sense of we want to honor God because he sees everything, we want to please him, there's not this terrifying, servile fear. We shouldn't have that. But I do want to say this. This idea of what God has done for us in Christ, it doesn't remove fear. Um, It makes it Christian fear, you know, um, but I would suggest that rather than removing fear, it actually deepens it. Yes. This kind of godly, filial fear, it deepens it, and it's actually fuel for godliness. Listen to this remarkable passage in 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter says this, If you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So here's what he's saying. You You call on God as father, the one who's going to judge each one impartially according to what they've done. We're going to stand before God and give an account. That's true. We're going to do that. And so we should conduct ourselves with fear. That sounds like living in the fear of the Lord. Conduct ourselves with fear throughout the time of our exile. That's life on earth. Knowing this, that you are ransomed, not with something cheap like silver and gold, but with the precious, glorious blood of Christ. You know, I think one of the reasons why Christians live so loose and careless is because they don't understand what God paid to ransom them. I think I shared this a few weeks ago. Martin Lloyd-Jones said if somebody showed up at my, home, my house with a, a letter and said, hey, this is a letter It's it indicates that one of your debts was paid. He said, well, I would kind of need to know how big the debt was to know how I should respond. Mm -hmm. If somebody paid a parking ticket, I don't think he said parking ticket, but if somebody paid a parking ticket, you know, an $8 parking ticket down in Des Moines or whatever, I would say, thank you very much. Mm -hmm. But if I realized that it was a million-dollar bill that I owed to the IRS, or whatever the British equivalency of that is, (laughs) He said, I would fall down on my knees and praise the Lord. You were not ransomed with something, now notice he says silver and gold, something perishable like that. You were ransomed with the imperishable, infinitely precious blood of Christ. And that ought to free us from condemnation. I, actually, David said that. Condemnation, no doubt. And it ought to free us from this kind of lazy thinking that we just kind of float through life and just do whatever we feel like doing. No, we want to live for the praise and honor of our Father who paid such a high price for us. When this enters your mind more and more, you will not simply follow your own heart, or go with the flow, or be led foolishly by every fad, whether it's a fashion fad or a spiritual fad that comes along. There will be a a certain care and sobriety in how we seek to order our lives. You and I will want to steer clear of all that brings reproach upon our Father. And the main question in terms of our conduct will be this, what will please my Father who ransomed me at such a high cost? J.C. Ryle has, it's part of a book that he, but he has this little excerpt in a book where he talks about being a man, a woman of one thing. Zeal to please God. And it comes from having this reverence, this fear of God. And this leads to the fourth and final ingredient in the fear of the Lord, and it's this. Let me just recap. So the first is a right knowledge, a true knowledge of God. The second is a pervasive sense of his presence. The third is a growing gratitude for what God has done for us in Christ. And fourth, a powerful recognition of our responsibility or duty to God. Now, if you love grace, you might think, well, now wait a second. I thought we're, you know, we don't, duty seems like, you know, something we owe God. And there is a sense in which we owe God. Not to pay him back or to try to work grace off at all. Not that at all. But as saved, beloved children. Think of it this way. You once were a slave of sin and Satan. Right? You belonged to Satan's household. You were enslaved to your lusts and sins. And then you were ransomed, which means you were purchased by God through Christ. And now you're a slave of righteousness or a slave of God. You belong to him. Whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. We belong to him now. You've been bought with a price and Jesus says, therefore, no, That Paul says that. First Corinthians 6, glorify God in your body because you're bought with a price. So we owe God. We have a duty to God. As men, as women, as boys, as girls, purchased by the blood of Jesus, ransomed and now his, what should we render to God? What is our duty to him? I think we should think this way. I suppose we could spend a lot of time here and flesh out and go into all the details, and I'm not going to do that because we're kind of short on time. We're wrapping things up here. But for today, I, just, I, wanna, I want us to consider three things. What do we owe to God? What is our duty to him? First, to love him supremely. What is the first and greatest commandment? Jesus tells us it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then it's to love your neighbor as yourself, but first it's to love God. we, We should give God our supreme love. We should love him supremely. That's what we owe him. Those who fear the Lord have no other gods before God. And when God reveals that there is a God before God, guess what we do? We take the axe and chop that tree down. We just, we're, no, we're going to get rid of that. It's interesting, Gideon, before he could lead the armies of Israel against the Midianites, he had to cut down the idol in his own home, his father's idol, or the altar. Right? He had to tear it down, and he did. So we need to love God supremely. When it comes down to loving God or loving our own reputation, our own comfort, our own possessions, our job, our family, or anything else, love for God is primary. And Jesus tells us this. Whoever does not hate his mother, father, husband, wife, children, even his own life for my sake, is not worthy of me. Now, of course, Jesus doesn't mean treat people like you hate them. It's just in comparison with our love to him, our love for everybody else is like hate because we love him supremely. So first, we owe God love. We owe him our undivided love. Second, we owe him trust. We're to trust God absolutely. That's what we owe him. I think, right, if everyone here was once a toddler, which you were, everybody here, at least at one time, and maybe some still, we all probably still battle this, uh, but everybody, at least at one time, you were pretty convinced that you should be the ruler of the world. Right? Right? And some still feel that way. When things don't go their way, it's you know like, oh, I can't believe it. This isn't right. Things aren't going the way that I think they should go. Well, you and I are not the ruler of the world, and praise God we're not. God is. And because God is the ruler of the world and he's a good one, we should trust him implicitly. We should trust him absolutely. We should trust him unreservedly. Not because we can see everything he's up to. We can't. But because we sang it earlier. Because we really are convinced that he does actually have the whole world in his hands. And that's actually biblical. It's not just a nursery song that Matt Redmond turned into a worship song. The earth is the Lord's. And the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, Psalm 24, one: The earth belongs to him and everything in it, the world and everyone in it. It all belongs to him. We confess that. We trust him. Even when things don't go the way that we would like them to or the way that we think they should go, we trust him. There's one more thing that we owe God and our duty to God, you might say. And, uh, and of course, we could go on, but I'm just going to stop here. It's obedience. What is the call to discipleship in the Great Commission? Be baptized and then learn obedience to all that Christ commands. Full and complete obedience, that's what we owe God. Now, we don't perfectly give that to God. But our aim should be to give it to God. Elizabeth Elliot once said, and I think she means for Christians, so I would just add that to the beginning of this. For Christians, obedience to God is always possible. It is a deadly error. I want to say that again. It is a deadly error to fall into the temptation, or excuse me, fall into the notion that when feelings are extremely strong, we can do nothing but act upon them. It is a deadly error to fall into that. That when feelings are really, 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 really strong, I know God says this, but man, I feel this so strongly. It's a deadly error to say, you know what? We get the temptation to do that, but we're to give God our obedience. These are the ingredients needed to walk in the fear of the Lord, a true knowledge of God, a pervasive awareness of God's presence, a a growing gratitude for what God has done for us in Christ and a strong sense of duty to God. We live for God. We live for him now. So my prayer is that God would grant us these, that we would grow in each one of these, a, a knowledge of who he is, reminding ourselves and reminding each other Brother, sister, you are living before the face of God. Remember, remember what he's done for you in Christ. Remember the high price he paid for you. And then let's give him what is due to his name. Worship, of course, but worship's all of these things are worship. Loving him is worship. Trusting him is worship. Obedience to him is to be worship. We're to give him what is his due. So may God grant us these. May he grant us to walk in the fear of the Lord. May he, this is a prayer that that I, I do pray for myself and I pray for us and I think we ought to pray this. Psalm 86, 11, unite my heart to fear your name. Right. May God unite our hearts to fear his name. And think about what that means, like our hearts unite our heart, right? It's because our hearts are, Scattered and divided. <laughs> Different allegiances, you know? But one pervasive allegiance to God and to fear him. Unite my heart to fear your name. Brothers and sisters, when we fear the Lord, and I've tasted of this, at least some, no doubt you have too. When we truly fear God, it frees us from a million other fears. The fear of other people and what they think, living for the approval of others, it frees us from the fear of an unknown future. It frees us from the fear of receiving bad news. I'm not saying that we, we can't for, for a moment be shaken, but then all of a sudden, wait a second. No, no, no. I know who my God is. I'm living in his presence. I'm before his face. He's good. He's proven that to me through Christ. No doubt. Right? He poured out, his son's blood was poured out to ransom me, to reconcile me to himself. And so I'm going to give him love and trust and obedience. I'm going to give him worship. So I'm going to ask you to do something with me. Would you stand up and would you grab the hand of someone...